Over the past few weeks, Brittany and I have had the opportunity to speak with a few different people about the Red Justice Project and why we wanted to start this podcast. So for me, it all leads back to Serial. I'm not sure how many folks listening to us have also listened to the podcast Serial, but it does tell the story of Adnan Saeed, who was only 17 at the time in 1999 when he was accused of killing his girlfriend, Hey Min Lee. Serial became so popular and really hooked a lot of people on podcasts, including myself, back in 2014 when it premiered. I mean, the first season had 175 million downloads. I need us to get to that serial level ASAP, y'all. So right now, what we want y'all to do is pull out your phones. I don't know if y'all are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, but if you are, then you can give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And don't be hitting that one star now or that two star. We need y'all to give us a five-star review because we are, what, five-star cheeks. Please do. (laughs) I don't know if I'd call myself a five-star cheek, but Lord. Oh, what are you, a (laughs) six-star? Yeah, five and a half. (laughs) Thanks. Um, but, so as Brittany said, yes, please rate us and please message us like we love hearing from y'all and how you're enjoying the podcast so far. And I know once I binge Serial, I really became fascinated with true crime podcasts. And over the years, I began to notice a couple of things. One, as always, there were very few or no mentions of Indigenous folks in some of the podcasts that I listened to. And two, while there were Indigenous-themed podcasts that I listened to, there just weren't one centered around true crime or missing and murdered Native people. And actually, ones that were hosted by Indigenous voices for true crime categories. So I wanted to change that. I wanted our stories heard, and I wanted our voices heard. And one of the things, too, that you know, I think we've been reflecting on in the different um, different times that we've been interviewed lately about our podcast is just the importance of oral tradition in our culture. And so our people are, you know, we fundamentally like to share stories with each other and like update each other on our lives through, through like oral tradition. Like that is a very fundamental part of what it means to be Lumbee, but also what it means to be Native American in general. And so I think podcasting is just another form of us doing that through a more modern mechanism. And so You know, for me, when folks ask me about starting this podcast, I also think that this is another form of justice that we can give to the victims that we cover in our cases. A lot of times with the stories that we cover, the cases don't get a lot of media attention. So, for example, last week, like the case with Marcy Blank, she received very little media attention. And also the story that we're going to share today, only you'll only find one article on that online. And so I think that mechanisms like podcasts or media articles or news coverage is another form of justice that we can give to victims. And this is our uh, small way of doing that now. Um, And it may sound silly to some people to say that a podcast can be another form of justice, but you have to remember that more than 95% of cases of missing and murdered indigenous people receive no national or international media coverage. And the story that we're going to tell you today didn't even have any local coverage, really. There was one article, like I said earlier, about Burnell Jap Locklear in the local newspaper after his death. And unfortunately, his story wasn't even the main headline. It was an additional mention halfway through the news article. It's for people like Burnell, whose case can so easily be forgotten, that we started this podcast. This is the Red Justice Project.
So, as Brittany mentioned, today's story is about Burnell Locklear, who went by the nickname Jap his whole life. Throughout the story, we'll call him Jap instead of Burnell, since that was what he was known as. Uh, and Brittany, I think I always joke with my husband that, you know, he has family members that he didn't know their real name until even just a couple of years ago because us Lumbees will only use nicknames. Yes, honey, we will nickname somebody to death. My little sister, her name is Andrea, but when she was born, every my grandma just started calling her Mookie, and so everybody calls her Mookie now. Like nobody calls her her name. And so one day, uh, we were I was with I think some of my great uncles, and we were like saying something about Andrea and he was like who's Andrea and I mean at this point my sister was like 19 so like how do you not know who Andrea is but I just want to ask you Chelsea did you know Jap no I didn't really know Jap personally but he is my cousin Ramona's uncle on her daddy's side and I'm kin to Ramona on her mama's side so shout out to Ramona for giving me information on Jap and allowing me to interview her and her cousin Junior who is one of Jap's nephews as well. Um, he allowed me to interview him. And we'll be playing snippets from both of those interviews throughout the episode. So Jap was Lumbee, and he was from Pembroke, North Carolina, so my hometown, for those of you not familiar with the area. He was born in 1941, and he came from a family of nine children, eight boys and one girl. Oh my God, one girl to deal with eight brothers i would be so fed up with all them boys running around and that just reminds me of my grandma so much because she was literally the exact same um there were four brothers born and then she was born and then she had there were four brothers after her and so she is one girl out of um eight boys just like this yep and jet was the same way or his family was the same way it was four boys born and then one girl and then four more boys oh my god how weird so funny I would probably have wondered, though, if I was, like, in the right family, like, hey, mama, daddy, y'all sure y'all got the right baby? Your grandma probably felt the same way. Right. Yes. Um, So here's Junior and then Ramona telling us about their Uncle Jap. And before we start, please note that I was holding my three-month-old during both my interviews with Junior and Ramona, and I definitely thought my mic was on mute while they were speaking, and that was not the case. So you may hear her make her podcast debut a couple of times throughout the interviews. Yeah, I mean, just he was a good guy. I, I, okay, bye. I'll see you. <laughs> uh, you know, I, uh, I looked forward to seeing him when I came down here before I moved down here and uh he was just you know he was he was a good a good person and for what happened to him he didn't deserve that mm-hmm. you know I mean he didn't deserve that <laughs> no I'm gonna sum up like Uncle Jab he was um he was a very uh soft-spoken uh nicest guy that anybody ever wanted to meet um he did have some skeletons in his closet, but he was like everybody else, you know. We all have skeletons, but he was a good good guy. He tried to stay to himself. Um, the very first time that um, I brought Patrick home to meet the family before we were ever married, we um, Uncle, Uncle Jack was at my grandma's house, and he was talking to Patrick. And Patrick couldn't understand a word he said. And Patrick says, is he speaking your language? <laughs> <laughs> because he had, you know, the real thick, lumpy 
So our story takes us back to the morning hours of June 15, 2012. Julius Locklear was awakened by a knocking at the door. When he opened his door at around 5 a.m., he was surprised to see his neighbor standing there asking him to come over to his home. The neighbor told Julius to come over because he had found Jap dead in his house when he had arrived home that morning. He said that he had been out, out all night partying, and when he got home, he found Jap's lifeless body in his house. Still in shock, Julius followed the neighbor. When Julius entered the house, he found his brother Jap lying on the floor. And y'all, the scene his brother witnessed is devastating to describe. At 71 years old, Jap had been viciously murdered. His face and body had been beat with the claw end of a hammer. His genitals were mutilated, and he had been stabbed and shot. It was a horribly tra tragic scene for anybody to witness, but for Julius to see his own brother lying like that, that had to be, you know, just completely devastating to his spirit. Yes, I can't imagine, like, finding someone that I love lying like that on the floor, and the mental trauma of seeing your sibling of just 71 years like that had to be truly detrimental to Julius. And his son, Julius Jr., who, you know, we interviewed, he said that today that Julius suffers from dementia and his mental decline actually came right after his brother's death. Oh my God, that is, that is just so tragic, you know, to even think about. I've never even thought about like dementia getting triggered by, you know, a traumatic event. But, mm -hmm. you know, right after Julius found Jap, he immediately called 911 and notified the family. And so if anybody listening is familiar with the Pembroke area, this took place on St. Anna Road down past Bear Swamp Church. Much of the Locklear family, including Jap's brother and sister, lived right around him. And Jap had actually built several wooden buildings right near St. Anna Road on the family property, and they affectionately called it Japville, which I think is so cute. Yep, and since I was actually familiar with Jap's family, I can remember seeing those wooden houses most of my life. My uncle Johnny used to actually stay right over behind Jap when I was little, um, you know, on that family's property. And I've been down St. Anna Road more times than I can count in my life. And as Brittany mentioned, Jap's family lived kind of right around him. So his brothers and his sister, Yvonne, he lived in one of the wooden houses he had built. And he rented out the house next to him to the man who would later find him. And throughout the story, I'm just going to mention that we are not going to say the names of the folks that are kind of involved with that story. We'll just refer to them as they or him because it is still an open investigation. So he wasn't murder in his own home. He was murder in the neighbor's house. And while the neighbor claims he wasn't home at all. So it was really suspicious to the family just right away. And I just have so many questions like right off the bat, like if he was murdered in the neighbor's house, how did he even get in there and then why was Jap in there in the first place? And then also, like, why wasn't the neighbor home? I, I, I mean, why wouldn't he have been there at his house? Right. And that's something the neighbor could not answer. He didn't know why Jap was in his home or how he got there. He said he had been hanging out all night and didn't arrive home until the early morning hours. Which, y'all, if you're from Robinson County, you know there are not bars or restaurants open all night. It is not a place where there's a lot going on where you can just hang out somewhere all night you know so I, I think it's kind of really convenient from the beginning for him to just say oh I wasn't at home at all when this murder took place also it should be noted that the neighbor did not call 911 as soon as he found Jap he went first to Jap's 
other brother, Austin's house, and when he didn't answer the door, he went to Jap's sister's home. She heard him knocking, but she did not answer the door. When we have to remember that Jap was 71, so his siblings, they're all elders. You know, if someone was knocking on my grandma's door that early in the morning, I definitely would not want her answering the door. No, and none of my family would answer the door that early in the morning anyways unless they was holding a shotgun so but here is ramona recounting what her family heard she said that um someone came and knocked on her door around four four to four thirty in the morning so it would have been yeah sometime between four and five o'clock that that his body was discovered and so once the police arrived they went through and did an investigation Jap's body was so badly damaged that it could not be processed for evidence in the county, so it was sent to the state lab in Raleigh. It took them over a week to actually send his body back home to his family. Junior and Ramona both said that his body had been so badly injured in his death that the family could actually smell him through the closed casket because it just couldn't hold the embalming fluid properly. And when I heard that, it was just so gut-wrenching to me. Not only were they not able to have an open casket to see Jap one last time, but to know that Jap had gone through such a shocking death was unbelievable. Like, who could do something like this to a man who mostly kept to himself and didn't have a super violent past? And also, he's, he's elderly as well. I mean, he's 71 years old. And the family had a lot of theories about what happened to Jap and who did it, which we'll touch on in a bit. Yep. And so the Robson County Sheriff's Department, they started their investigation right after his death and brought in folks for questioning. But in the almost nine years since Jap's murder, not a single arrest has been made. His murder has turned into a cold case and most of what happened to him has never been released to the public. In fact, we couldn't find a single news article, as Brittany mentioned earlier, about Jap's death when it was time for us to write this episode. There was one news article that briefly mentioned Jap, but he wasn't even the main subject of the story. It was about another young man whose name was Joel James, who was shot in a nearby town in his home. And halfway through the article, there was a small snippet about Jap that said, James's death is the second to occur in the county in four days that has been investigated by the sheriff's office. Burdell Jap Locklear, 71, was killed next door to his home at 2386 St. Anna Road in Pembroke. Sheriff Kenneth Seeley said, Seeley said his investigators have a person of interest in Locklear's death, which they are calling a murder, but are waiting on autopsy results before releasing the details on how he died. And the reason I wanted to read this snippet, it's only three lines, but those are the only three lines of media attention Jap ever received. So this past week, when we actually did our interview with the Robinsonian, which is our local county paper, to talk about the podcast and why it's so important to keep telling these stories in an effort to get justice for these victims, um, you know, I think it kind of resonated with us. Like, And I want to thank Tamika Sinclair for taking the time to interview us and really hope that this will open up conversations in our county to do more work together to kind of bring awareness to the many deaths that are just overlooked or underreported, especially gruesome ones like this of innocent people. I mean, especially one of our elders who didn't deserve a tragic death sentence. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, too. And it just makes me, again, think back to the episode from last week about um, Marcy Blanks. And if you haven't listened to that, I really deeply encourage you to listen to that episode if you can after this one. But, you know, her case is at least she did at least get a few articles, but still that you would think that with the nature of the crime 
that she would have received a bigger spotlight because I'm not even sure hers was on the front page or anything like that as well. So, you know, I think so often when we're listening to true crime podcasts, sometimes we forget that these people we're talking about or listening about are real people with families just like ours. Their lives and their stories are important. And I also think it's interesting to hear the stories that folks choose to tell. So in the case of Jap, here is Ramona telling us about an accident that Jap was involved in. This must have happened in the early 70s. And um, he was a painter. So he would paint houses and stuff uh, for people. And this particular, at this particular time, he was living in Greensboro and I think he was actually working for a company because after this he started kind of doing it on the side but <clears throat> we we got a call he was on um, a ladder or something and he fell off three stories <laughs> off this ladder and he uh, fell into uh, a tree and that was the only thing that saved his life so he was in the hospital for ever and i remember as a little girl we drove to greensboro to see him in the hospital but yeah he almost died and it's crazy to think that he overcame that accident all those years ago just to be murdered in a home that he built you know right next to his other home in little old chapville yeah and right and so going back to the scene of the crime as we mentioned jap was murdered in his neighbor's house which was actually a house that he owned and was renting out the man whose name we're not going to mention like Voldemort, um, had actually been arrested and done jail time for killing a man before so he was a convicted killer junior who chelsea interviewed for the episode was away in michigan doing work during the time that jap was murdered he also lives in the same area as Jap and the rest of the, of the Locklear family. Junior says that when he returned home, another neighbor who was renting a trailer on their family's land came over to tell him that he actually heard Jap being murdered the night before between the hours of 8.30 and 9 o'clock p.m. Junior thought that this was odd that he would tell him that and ask him to go to the police with, the, with that information and he actually refused to do so. And so we have someone that is telling us, one, that they heard Jap being murdered almost eight to nine hours before the family even knew, which is kind of crazy to think about. And then two, he's not going to do anything about it. And so much could have and probably did occur during that time frame if he actually was murdered between, you know, 8.30, 9 o'clock the night before. And on top of that, Junior was pretty upset to actually walk back in the house after the investigators had been through to collect evidence and look at the crime scene. He said that there was evidence left everywhere and that he has photos to prove it. Y'all, the whole end of a gun was left at the scene, along with socks and boots, all with Jap's blood on them. Junior shared the photos with us and it was a hard scene to look at. There is blood everywhere, including the ceiling. You can see a dollar bill and change among the blood spatters on the floor. Junior told me it was likely Jap since he carried a pocket full of change with him. There's a bloody footprint clear as day from a larger foot, presumably the killer's. The murder occurred in like a living room or hallway area and Junior says that it was really obvious that some time had passed between Jap being murdered and his family being notified. There was blood found on the bathroom sink and in the bedroom from where it looked like the killer tried to probably clean themselves up after it happened. And here is Junior describing some of the scene. Past the bedroom, there was a bed there, and the corner of that bed was covered with blood. 
So I'm thinking they slaughtered and sat on that bed, <laughs> using their mind trying to figure out what to do. You know, because I don't know how that blood got from over there to there, unless it was just the, the person was drenched in blood <laughs> killing Jack. Y'all, I was shocked when I saw the photos and I sent them to Brittany like right away because I was like, you have to see this. And I guess from watching true crime shows and listening to true crime podcasts, I just thought because there was so much detail in all of the photos that Junior took, especially like the footprints. I would just think that a couple of persons of interest that the sheriffs had, like they could just use those footprints just to match up what they found at the scene. Like, you know, come in, have someone take someone's footprint and just see if it's a match um you know something like that maybe i'm too crazy to think like you know it's as simple as that but another important detail to note is that when the neighbor came to tell julius that his brother was dead in his house his words were they've killed jap julius and the rest of the family thought it was odd that he said they killed jap like who was the they and you know how did you know it was one more than one person involved and here's Ramona, who makes a good point, too, about it probably being more than one killer. The thing is, is that Uncle Jap was stabbed. He was also shot. Mm-hmm. And his body was pretty mutilated. So, um, you know, people believe that there must have been more than one person involved because you don't usually, like, put your knife down and then start shooting somebody after, you know? Yeah. There's two weapons. There's probably more than one person. Right, and it seems like he inadvertently knew who it was and that there was more than one person involved. After Jap's death, the neighbor was obviously forced to move out, and also the other neighbor, the one we mentioned, who said that he had heard the murder going on, there is speculation that he knew much more than he let on. Junior told me that Jap had issues with that neighbor because he had a violent temper. He said that one day Jap actually came out of the house and shot up in the air near the neighbor's house because he was outside beating his girlfriend and that was Jap's attempt to stop him. Jap told the neighbor he was going to kill her if he didn't stop beating her and Jap later told his family when recounting the story that the neighbor's response was no, I'm going to kill you. So there are two pretty violent men living around Jap and the Locklear family during this time. The family was able to actually evict that man from their land and the house he was renting from Jap's brother a short time after Jap's death as well. But there are still so many unanswered questions. How did his killer get him out of his home that evening? How did he get inside the neighbor's house? When did he actually die? And most importantly, who could have killed him in such a gruesome way? I don't know if this has anything to do with why the sheriff's department hasn't dug more into Jap's case, but Ramona and I were kind of talking about folks like Jap. There are almost these people that are kind of on the fringes of our society. He was never married and he didn't have any kids. And I guess it makes you wonder, you know, because there's not a grieving widow to interview or a son or daughter constantly advocating for him. Is that why he didn't receive more press coverage or more pressure for his case to be solved? But, you know, Jap, he still has family. He has brothers and a sister. He has tons of nieces and nephews that very much want his murder to be solved. But their faith in that system seems to grow bleaker with passing time. Ramona said that she sent so many messages to the lead investigator over the years without a response. And some of his brothers, including Ramona's own dad, have since passed without ever seeing someone arrested for his murder. That's the frustrating part. 
if if they have DNA, don't have DNA, know who did it, don't know who did it, how would we know? Because yeah. literally have not said one word to the family about it. And here's Ramona again um, on our clip talking about why his case might not have received the attention that it should. No wife, no kids. They He was just kind of living on the fringes of society, you know? And I feel like that's another, maybe another reason why they didn't really put a lot of time and effort to it. That, and that's, it's a tragedy. Yeah. It's like, we all, we all have worth. It doesn't matter what you do with your life, you know? If you have any information, and we truly mean any information about the murder of Burnell Jap Locklear, then please reach out to the Robinson County Sheriff's Department. Show them that there is interest in this case that Jap's death should not be just another unsolved homicide in the county. Before we end the episode, we'd like to tell you one more story of Jap, because us Lumbees love us a good ghost story. And just as a preface, if you haven't seen the picture of Jap yet, uh, he had a longer white beard in his old age and had it when he was murdered. Here is Junior describing it and then Ramona telling her story. And, he, you know, they used to call him Papa Smurf, you know. He got that name, he had that little white beard, you know, and he just looked like Papa Smurf, you know. I have to tell you one other little story that happened too. Um, who would want to rent that house out? I don't know. But they do have people that rent out that, that little area, that um, house that Jap was murdered in. And there's a guy with his daughter that's like three or four years old. And one night she, she asked her dad, why does Santa Claus keep coming here and sitting on this couch with us? Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's Jap coming to visit. Yeah, because, you know, he has this beard. Yeah. Santa Claus beard, so. We hope that Jap's spirit can rest one day and that his killer or killers are brought to justice. This is the Red Justice Project.